Hello everyone, good evening and welcome here at Lima at the second Cultural Matter event that revolves around the work Max Payne Cheats Only by Jody. Um, I'm really excited with our guest speaker of tonight because as you might all know, um, Jan-Robert Leegte is uh, my fellow curator of this series, but tonight he has a double role and he's also our guest speaker uh, talking about the performing machine, starting from Max Payne Cheats Only and going to a wide realm of digital or perhaps even analog artworks in which we see some machinery. Um, but I think Jan Robert is better to explain than I am, so I'm, I want to give you the floor and um, enjoy. Good luck. I will do such thing. Welcome everybody. Great you came out in this uh, winter evening. Um, as introducer, we'll I'll be sort of taking the work, which is, you can see down the hallway as a, as a starting point, point of reference. And it's more sort of a thought I had about it um, that I always saw the work as a, an extremely performative piece. And I, um, I, will, I will sort of show you what it uh, reminds me of. But apart from that, I also, oops, we have the moment, we have the microphone. Um, uh, I've been working on this uh, essay about the performativity of the computer, which is also the, um, the core material I work with as an artist, and the same goes for, for Jody as, a, as being sort of internet artist. So, uh, and their work has been very much about sort of capturing the essence of the machine and see how it works as an artistic uh, uh, tool, what its, uh, what its materiality, etc. So. I thought I'll just throw in my thoughts. I'll be adding works from them, from myself, from others, uh, to try and sort of uh, explain my thoughts about that and hopefully sort of corner the performativity aspect of the machine. Um, so a bit of history. This, of course, if you know it, if you don't, this is considered the first sort of uh, conceptual computer. There's been additions before that. Um, which were more sort of uh, early sort of mechanical calculators, but this one uh, is always seen as, as, as the quintessential start because uh, conceptually Charles Babbage, the inventor of this machine, um, really wanted to create this general calculation machine, a machine that was openly programmable, had a memory, and basically had the blueprint for the modern computer. <clears throat> Why I'm always, apart from that, really I love this thing uh, because it's, um, well, it's very steampunk, first of all, and it's very, um, it's very elegant in its execution, but it's extremely transparent. And I find that um, something very interesting in regards to computing. <clears throat> he never was able to build one in his lifetime. We're talking about the 19th, mid 19th century. Uh, there's two machines being executed based on his drawings. Um, one is in, uh, in the UK, in London, and one is in the, let me see, in the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. Where else? And um, I'll, just, I'll just read you a bit about uh, my thoughts on this. The internet you can, is an unimaginably vast ecology of data and processes. Deeply stored data is immutable like buried granite while other data is constantly in flux like a rushing mountain stream. And the whole system is in continuous evolution 
through endless processes reshaping the data and interacting with each other and with ourselves. Here at the opaque, opaque surface of this churning ocean of bits is where the exchange between the realm of the computer and that of ourselves takes place. And it's, it's this that we call the interface. And from the very first experiments with making computational machines, the work of Charles Babbage, the difference engine, the machine needed an interface. In the most elementary terms, the machine needs input after which it will compute this, resulting in a certain output, which is the end result of the interaction. This machine, a technological tool, has been designed to calculate certain wishes and communicate back the results. It therefore requires a human-machine interface. In early versions, like the, the machine we see here, the difference engine, the interfacing and functioning of the machine were transparently connected. You could visually perceive the logic and understand the process, if you would be technologically advanced, but it, was, it is a complete transparent machine. The materiality of the interface and of the machine form a perceptive whole. So if you look at the difference engine, the accessibility is beautifully illustrated by um, the physical hand crank you can see here um, to set the calculations in motion. We'll just go into a, a lovely video. And here's already an aspect. I mean, this is just stunning. I would love to uh, see one of these in real life. But you can already feel the, the intrinsic performative quality of the machine. You can see it dance. You can see it um, perform this sort of calculative choreography. Um, but apart from that, you see the actual labor of the person putting information in. That makes it so, that makes the connection body machine still so clear. Something which we have lost over the, over the, the, the long time of advancing computers. Um, I thought I'll show you another piece, which of course is a piece from Tangeli, which has a very interesting sort of relation. Again, in the light of transparency and performative choreography machines. This is the, the Meta Harmony music machines. An exhibition showing four of them. Imagine Charles Babbage's machine right next to this, would suit nicely. remind him again of uh, a piece which has been discussed in this building a lot when we were looking at sort of a Dutch important artist in the media art field and one of them was Remco Scha and this is probably his most famous piece uh, his machines um, I believe a work from the 60s if I'm not completely wrong um, uh, which he he strung up all electric guitars and he would uh, 
he would have like these these long ropes which would be triggered by I believe sort of a, sort of electric saws so they would sort of like rattle at the at the chains uh, which creates this sort of sort of <coughs> uh, performing installation musically performing installation Remkuscha passed away a couple of years ago. Um, so now uh, the work, his body of work, in this case, this is Samuel Friesen. He's, an, uh, he's a, a composer, I believe, a musician. And he is, um, so he's touring with the installation of Remkuscha and actually performing on it currently. I'll just leave it with this. Um, so again, it's, it's very readable. I think that's, that's sort of very elegant about it. So you can very much understand what the machine is doing and you can um, also the, the actual live, liveness and emotion of it becomes a part of the elegance and the aesthetics of it. Remco um, Schaar himself was very much on a quest to automate art. So that was one of his, his life quests and he, um, he believed in a completely automated art and that humans would be obsolete in that case, which is something which, um, as an early sort of computer scientist, he pretty much is, um, he was sort of looking in the future, because of course with the AI developments, this question is being re-asked a lot. Um, but which is what is charming, because it's one of his older works, his machines are still so rudimentary and so, um, in a way, sort of really close to the human understanding. Of course, later everything becomes more black boxed. Um, and I'll, I'll go on with that. As mechanics became electronics and the complexity and speed of the calculation raised exponentially, the inside and outside of the computer started distancing themselves from one another. The input-output procedure became less and less transparent, raising a barrier. And as early as 1969, the term transparency was introduced to refer to a specific computer programming technique that kept software code clear of low-level detail. This idea of transparency became the paradigm of interface design as put forward by Apple, Apple Steve Jobs. Envisioning an interface so intuitive that anyone could understand and interact with it at the cost of hiding all inner workings of the machine. This development marked the construction of a definite wall between the inside and the surface of the computer's functioning. So ironically thus, the term transparency came to be used to refer to the invisibility of the computer's processes. Within interface and software design, but also in common parlance, the interface is generally understood as the interactive layer of software together with the frame containing the software. I'll just throw in an old work I made in, I believe, 2004, which is this, um, it's called Software Study, and it's basically a bit of strip software, uh, just sort of revealing the architecture and the, the interaction and nothing else. So this, this is what, in general, is considered um, interface. Um, and the definition of interface that surrounds the user data is often turned Chrome. Hence, the currently most used browser holds the same name. It is, it, it's been nothing more than an interactive frame serving content. 
Interestingly, the term chrome introduces an ornamental reference, alluding as it does to the chrome used to, visualize, to visually enhance American cars in the 50s. However, if we start to look more closely, the definition of the interface introduced by the industry itself does not precisely explain the complete human-computer uh, human interfacing. As Frieda Nake and Susanna Grabowski had noted, software never appears without its interface. The human-computer interface is, first of all, the face of its software. And software cannot exist without a face. And in the words of Vito Campanelli, the face of software is its appearance at the periphery of the computer. Without the face, it does not exist at all. Although we may be able to imagine a situation in which human computers run code without any output needed for humans, generally software is in service of humans, and therefore it needs a face. However, the key point made here is that the interface does not only entail the interactive layer, as I've shown here, but rather the complete interaction between human and computer, resulting in the whole appearance, including the content. For instance, all steps in the process of transforming bits stored somewhere in a computer memory to a JPEG data stream, which in turn is transformed into a, a seemingly static image on your screen, is all part of the interfacing. It does not stop at the frame of your software. It is the complete experience of the software. More specifically, the computer does not make any distinction between the close button on your window or the YouTube video you're actually watching. They are both manifestations of data and processes interfaced on the screen. To understand this more thoroughly, it is useful to look into the underlying workings of the black box behind the face. The computer programmer writes a series of instructions, a programming language of choice, which is a static length of text. The code is then further compiled by the computer into another static length of text containing serialized instructions in the form of machine language, which are directly readable and executable by a computer. But they still are nothing more than a text. It is not until the program is executed that it becomes something completely different, namely running code. And the life force behind the running code is provided by the clock of the computer. And the clock consists the heart of the machine, constitutes the heart of the machine, executing instructions with every tick of its clock. And clocks within the processors of computers tick at extremely high rates, like a 2.4 gigahertz processor in an average laptop, average laptop ticks at 2.4 billion times a second. For a project I did for the Leap Second Festival 2016, I staged an online server performance called Counting for One Second. The work consists of a server-based script that was programmed to start counting during the leap second between 2400 hours on December 31st and 2400 hours and one second. An accompanying text file located on the web's work's web address explains the performance. I'll just grab it here small. There it is. Um, let me see. After the passing of the leap second and the completion of the program, the performance resulted in a generated text file documenting the act of counting. The meeting of two temporal dimensions culminated in this 13 megabyte text file, 
in which one can only see the counting of the computer from 1 to 1,799,822. This constantly accelerating temporality of code mismatches the temporality of everyday human life. The translation of these tempor temporal realms is, was is what happens at the surface of the software. To quote academic and writer David Berry, this is where the interface between the user and the machine becomes crucial, as it is a translational mediator, abstracting from the user the experience of the running code, presenting instead a serene, willing, and patient interface to the user. Another mismatch concerning running code is the spatiality of code in relation to the space of everyday human life. Attempts to visualize or model the space of running processes result in impossibilities and frustrations, as the spatiality is exotically different from ours. The actual running code space is where the data is stored in memory, and the computer runs the process and the data is transported. Since the original designs of the internet, data is distributed through packages that take the most convenient routes at the time of sending and hence take a different unpredictable route through the internet each time. Considering the actual location of address of the requested data, originally you would be pointing to a file on a specific server at a specific phys physical location. Today the data is mirrored on various servers within various server farms. Moreover, different parts of your request may come from different services. A single web page, for instance, could request services for advertisement banners, coding components, content elements, layout templates, etc. You could be comparing the loading of a web page to buying a mobile phone. The phone held in your hand is assembled from components from all over the world, transported to all kinds of assembly locations to be finally shipped to you. And each individual phone of the same model and brand will therefore have a unique history. Similarly, each time you reload the same web page will result in a uniquely compiled history of assembly and transportation. Therefore, the spatiality behind the manifestation of a web page on your screen does not involve the conception of space in physical dimensions, but one of distributed flow. William Gibson's de description of cyberspace in his famous novel Neuromancer in 1984, replacing the idea of space as depth with a notion of space as a flow of data, is critical here and also informed the Matrix movie series. Interestingly, in the same year Gibson published the novel, Apple released the first computer with a graphical user interface, the Macintosh. Entailing a visual metaphor in the form of a static wall of hierarchical files and folders, the, this GUI, this graphical user interface, obscured the bubbling and flowing nature of the computer's processes and data streams. As stated by, as stated by Lev Manovich, an order where every object has a distinct and well-defined place. And indeed, the introduction of the graphical user interface could be seen as a transformation of the public experience of the computer's interface into a static frame in which one can mediate or alter content, referred to by Manofich as a remediation machine. This strategic separation of the flowing reality of software from the seemingly static and orderly interface came in a time when personal computers were not networked and the illusion of overview and control was apparent still. 
Now, more than 30 years later, at a time when all devices are in constant high bandwidth connection and the internet can be available to every subroutine of every package of software, the roar of the underlying ocean is pushing through the illusionary facade. To quote Campanelli once more, the interface is a fiction. It's a form that pretends the data can be held steady, a quality that is crucial for humans to be able to interact with. This make-believe of the interface through the flow of data and computer processes is in a permanent state of performance. Various narratives, depending on the functionality and design of specific softwares, are staged before us. Data is represented to us, mimicking familiar materialities, suggesting a static condition of the media of which they remind us. A YouTube video stream may look like a 16mm film or a VHS cassette playing, but it's not a McLuhan con continuation of remediation. It's not placing a new technological shell around the previous, introducing the latest in the tradition of media. It is a digital reenactment of a medium being performed by running processes on the interfacial stage. The actual materiality can be felt when a glitch occurs, for instance. When an MPEG video file has lost data in transmission, it results in the video breaking up while trying to process the remaining data. Like a presenter who reads from a live teleprompter in which errors accidentally appear. I'll show you a bit of that as well. Um, this is a video from an artist called Jacques Pocante. Shame he isn't here because he nowadays is he's from France, France, but he's moved to uh, Rotterdam. He's become a Dutch inhabitant. And I find his work very interesting in this context because he um, he films natural scenes, but those videos he always uh, applies the glitch technique called data moshing to it. Data moshing is what I explained, is that you take out a time marker from your video and your video frames collapse and, it, and, your, and the interpreter, the video player, starts sort of catching up. Um, but it sort of drags the images along and they sort of, uh, sort of blend into each other. It's something you see when you watch a YouTube video or something online and you some, see some weird hiccup. But he actively always puts them into uh, these beautiful uh, observations in nature. So he always films water, woods, leaves, something with this motive, with wind blowing through it, or um, and he always adds data moshing. And that's basically all he does. He's made hundreds and hundreds of videos, um, and I think it's 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 extremely elegant. So you can see sort of the performative nature, which um, used to be sort of caught in this linear medium, and then it's released into this performative medium again, and it just becomes a sort of new nature. And that again, he captures in video, and he sort of sells that. Very mesmerizing work. Do visit his website, or there's his, his, his website has everything organized. It's an immense uh, database of beautiful videos. Another way to understand this notion of reenactment is to realize that the YouTube video stream could just be easily have been performed by the computer in the form of text, or a piece of music, or a game world, or even a 3D bit of printed software. 
It's just how the data is performed, um, which, which turns it into a medium. The staging of the interface also brings to mind the tradition of theater. Seemingly th static architectural elements, like the structural parts of the Chrome of your software window and the desktop could be seen as stage sets. Um, it's easy to read the functional elements of the interface, such as buttons and scroll bars to resemble props and the editable or viewable, viewable data to have a similarity with actors and the desktop image, the equivalent of the theater scenic backdrop. It's no coincidence that in the famous software package Adobe Flash, the area where one could create work was named the stage. And just as in theater, reading the visible elements as the mentioned categories can be deceiving. A real life static set, a static stage set can suddenly swivel around to become a totally different scene or object, changing the context and influencing the total narrative. Um, which brings us to the most famous piece of Jody. The first page of, page of www.jody.org, uh, a 1979 web-based work by Internet Art Collective Jody, of course, touches on this aspect. So on the website, visitors encounter an underlined and sent text conjured, uh, conjured of a chaotic series of characters that fill the browser. The work mimics a monochrome lime green, lime green on black screen, which is an anachronism in the time of the work when the work was made. In the original condition, the text would also blink at an interval of a second. And most visitors would probably understand the word to be a glitch. Misinterpreted data or some other software error and leave the page. However, users who would choose to view the source code, a feature supplied by most standard web browsers, um, would be presented with a second rendering of the same work. Here, within the HTML code, a series of schematics of an atomic bomb would be, appear, depicted by characters so -called, in the so-called ASCII style. The flipping of the stage set creates a completely different work of the same data. The work can be interfaced in two different ways, rendering two different enactments of the same code. And as with theater, the basic condition of the interface is that of action. And as Alex Galloway put it, an interface is not a thing, an interface is an effect. It is always a process or a translation. It performs an interactive narrative where stage set and props can be introduced to present an imaginative scenery. Yet the, sound, the set and the props are unstable. They are also performing and can switch roles and conditions, just like in the work of Jody. In Mouse Pointer, a work I created in 2003, by now already, that's a long time ago, um, the viewers are presented with a, a single gray web page. And the work's title draws to their attention that their own Mouse Pointer probably is introduced. Let me see. And as you see, if you just wander around, you get mimicked by a little clone. The works title draws their attention to their own mouse pointer. And as soon as the user moves the mouse and halts, a second mouse pointer starts mimicking the movement. This can be repeated endlessly, creating a pas de deux between the user and the second mouse pointer. The very default action of the mouse to initiate movement with a mouse 
is being reenacted by the work, like two children following each other's fingers on opposite sides of the window. The data received from the mouse movement is processed and mirrored back to the user. Hence, the mouse pointer fulfills its default role as a prop to be handled by the user, while simultaneously it's being reintroduced as an actor. The, analog the, analog the analogy with theatre helps us to understand the roles of the various elements within the interface, though it remains a metaphor. Fundamentally, the materiality of software is uniform, that of the Gibsonian data flow. In opposition to the physical sets, props of actors in theatre, within the interface, these elements are all active. All elements are active agents. Therefore, it is better to classify the complete face of software as an act of performance, in which tropes of theatre and architecture and classical media, etc., are all being enacted. And as they are being enacted, they have the ability to switch roles at, at instruction. There is a long series of traditions of works in the domain of performing interfaces, including desktop performances and generative software and software hacks and software appropriation and API-based arts, just to name a few. Viewing the interface as a performance can help in understanding artistic practices within the digital field. One where embracing itself or interfacing itself is embraced as the artistic act. It is a categorically different approach from using the computer as a medium simulator, an example as a tool to create specific media, for example, to manipulate images, create SCGI enhanced movies or write text, etc. Which brings me to uh, a total classic of performance art. I just wanted you to sink in this for a few minutes. 1968, Bruce Nauman. Shot with a camcorder. That's a very, do we still have one here? Probably we do, lovely. <laughs> For who, who doesn't know the work, um, Bruce Nauman sort of stripped down the artistic act right to the core and uh, took his body and his studio environment as the only two parameters. And um, borrowing a video camera from his gallerist, gallery owner, um, he spent some time in his, in his studio just recording himself, positioning himself opposed to the wall and the floor of his gallery space. Um, and it, it became a very sort of uh, fundamental sort of change in a, a base work, uh, redefining sort of what the act of art is and where the artwork is and um, the role, the position of the artist and of its studio, what its studio practice, etc. But mostly I think it's very interesting because it's so fundamentally about body and space. So it's really about, um, yeah, sort of investigating how your body relates to space in an extremely basic way. And it's this work I, I'd like to sort of reflect on the piece which actually is on show. So I'll be showing that next. And I think the first apparent difference will be the, the notion of time used in the 60s and today. So next piece will be extremely hectic and this one is extremely calming or very boring as, as if you how you read it um, interesting switch of culture
I'll be showing, um, as we learned from Jody, the unofficial, the trailer versions. Um, and I think this one is, of course, quite evidently related. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting um, parallels to be seen. First of all, they, the work which they call Max, it's called cheats only, Max Payne cheats only. So, and what the cheats sort of, um, by removing or by adding the cheats, they also added the possibility of gaining control over the camera, which is something, of course, very um, um, sort of directly related to Bruce Nauman. So they could actually position the, the camera to the space or to the person, and then they could start interacting with the space. Um, and mostly it's just that. It's rep repetitive movements in a space, sort of running against a wall, making somersaults, um, jumping and repeatedly jumping. Um, and that in itself, I would say, is practically the same as, as Nauman's doing. So it's just exploring that space and the body and then with the camera. Um, but what we see if we go to the... I believe, if you go to another one, for instance, um, what you see here is that the image is starting to collapse. So just like the work of Jacques Pecant, we were watching the... the the data moshing of the, the the videos of the of the of the what is it the the sea. Here the camera is being pushed into positions where it cannot record anymore sort of the the intended reality of the game and it's sort of starting to collapse. Um, and I think that is also that's then of course where the where the interface is breaking in a way. So it's it's literally breaking and you're sort of sort of looking through into the performing machine. And I think that's very much also the intention of Jody, because they, they very much are always hunting down to find this sort of, um, uh, the closest possible contact between maker and machine. So they're really sort of aiming to break through that interfacial facade uh, and throwing sort of the, the raw moments in between. But it also has the aspect of endurance of performance art, so these endless. I mean, they. I believe Dirk uh, Tolles last time he just, for the first time ever in his life, he played a whole game from beginning to start. So that's that's quite a run. So he um, he just played it all, recorded everything um, everything he saw, and uh, so you have this sort of a brown feature type of performance. It's like just, I'm going to set to do this, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to record anything I find. But funnily enough, the, the the wealth of information they've been recording doesn't that nothing feels like they're playing the game. It's always they're always just like bumping their heads in the corner or just uh, observing very specific elements. So we spent we must spend a lot of time in there. <laughs> and slowly coming towards a more sort of a final conclusion, I wanted to. Um, to zoom out and sort of accepting that this uh, that we're dealing with this this performing agent shielding its own black box in an ever increasing complexion and and, uh, uh, and sort of distance, um, it's important to take a human stance towards that and also sort of uh, 
to enable and to sort of start interacting in, in, a, in a sort of quite in, in this be aware of the body machine relationship and also all these layers in between. Um, so the performative aspect of the person to the machine I thought might be a nice way to conclude this and I stumbled upon this piece of Hito style, a very, very short video called Strike. Extremely short little video. Um, and that, when I saw this, I couldn't but think of this piece made when this Dirk performing on screens as well, but then Jody style. And um, I'll just read the last bit of the, the essay before we can uh, enjoy this. It also serves to understand uh, as a way to understand your position as a user interacting with software and how you participate in the narrative of the software interface designer, or as Alex Galloway describes it, to understand that you are subject to the interface as a control allegory. And Galloway concludes in his book, The Interface Effect, with a call to action. He says, the point is to call for a poetics as such for this mysterious new machinic space. Offering a counter aesthetic in the face of such systemity is the first step towards building a poetics for it, a language of representability adequate to it. But in response to Galloway's call, it's my, it's my suggestion not just to settle for a poetics of language uh, that will at best accomplish describing the issue, describing the issue to hand. I think it's the acting out of this language, uh, language on the interfacial stage that engages art with this wondrous platform the computer offers. So I presume to swivel the sets and become the prop and change the backdrops and hack the narrative and change the script and take to the stage and start to perform. And we'll let our good friend Dirk do exactly that. I think that was it. Thank you very much. Um, grab a drink. No, 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 not so oh, fast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, shit. Thank you very much, Jan Robert. <laughs> Are there any questions? I think the, the computer has a question for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jody's just yeah. fantastic. We'll just let the playlist run. Uh, I was wondering how you see this relation of the, because especially in the last two, it's mostly about the screen, which exactly. is already like, Totally. Um, yeah. So, how do you see that relation? What is your distinction between? Yeah. No, that's nothing to do with software, of course. It's a bit of hardware, but it's it's more the the performative act. It's more the the call to action. I think. Even it, if uh, its peripherals are performative, almost. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. But definitely. But it's it's sort of the same sort of intention you would find in all kinds of work of Jody, but I thought they were sort of metaphorically very, very nice in in action. Um, and, and you could easily do that on the interfacial stage as well, but less dramatic, maybe. <laughs> I have a question um, that maybe has to do something with this one. You started with, out with the, uh, uh, what's the name of the machine, the Babbage machine? Again. Babbage. Um, and isn't basically the crank in the machine also an interface? Because mm -hmm. you say it's a transparent machine and it's, uh, you can see through it, and it's a relatively simple machine. But, of course, in that time, it wasn't a simple machine at all. So isn't an interface not something that is in every stage of the machine? 
And when the technology uh, gets more complex, you just make more interfaces to make it understandable for some people who have to work with it. Well, I think it, there's always one interface, that between you and the system. There's not something behind that, because then that's the actual interface. So I think it, it is a sort of a fleece. Uh, but what I mean here is that the, that which is interfaced is completely transparent in the machine. So you could turn and you could just follow the logic visually. And the, the performance of the machine is actually complete. Uh, but I agree, it very fast it starts obscuring parts, of course. I mean, it just becomes a little more complex and you you would already have inner, inner revolvings which you didn't completely follow. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's extremely fast the interface becomes um, obscuring the data. But for a long time also with, um, I think, with the early big mainframe computers, they were still pretty readable very difficult to work with, that's the big problem. And that's, I mean, Apple had a logical sense of introducing this vision of transparent design, transparent, but it also is, I mean, I, the fact that they called it that is, is sort of, I think, typical. Um, it is sort of, okay, you don't have to see this. You don't have to know anything about that. We'll, uh, we'll make your system transparent so you only see the stuff you wanna see. So it is that, that obscuring aspect which is, uh, sort of, I mean, there's an open source movement which is very much against that, and uh, so there's a lot of uh, movement there. But uh, we're floating. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, just one more. But because uh, with the computer, you can like the interface. If you say there's one interface, is the interface between the consumer and the machine. But isn't there also like an interface for the one who does machine coding on that same computer? It's, a, yep. it's like same computer, different interface. Yeah, I see that as. Uh, yeah, I, I see that. That's the whole interfacial layer. That's like with the piece of Jody. Um, this one. Um, you could see some people would read it as, oh, that's the developer side and this is the consumer side. I see them as two uh, two performances. Uh, they're sort of two, two um, reenactments of the same code. So also the, the programmer is also at the same way as a human is incapable of sensing the actual speed and voltages, but is also just typing text. Um, so it's not that much closer. Of course, they understand the machines theoretically, but there is this sort of unbridgeable... Unbridgeable. Different performance within one interface or something. Could you say that? Well, yeah, it's sort of the, the electronics are, are communicating in a different, uh, different expressions or different enactments of the code. And I think this is a really nice example of that. Thanks. <laughs> Hi. Um, so I think uh, you talked a lot about you know the um, sort of carrying out something as a performance. And in the beginning, you mentioned this uh, this idea of also uh, automating uh, automating art, right? With the with this uh, electric guitar performance, because um, I feel like the the stuff that is sort of being acted out by the machines here is still sort of composed by a human artist. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see some sort of development in that, in that the computer could at some point also be the sort of the composer and the performer? Mm, which is, you mean, in which, in which aspect? So like the artist making a work and 
yeah, so directly that, re reaping the results. So what I'm getting at is sort of the, the requirement for, in, for human input or some sort of um, starting point that is you know, established by, by human artists. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you mentioned this idea of you know, automated art or sort of generative art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, I mean, computers are great in doing that. So you, you do, of course, have, you do have this inter interaction performative play between machine and there's a lot in that, of course. I mean, even in the commercial software of, 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 of synthesizer software or something. I mean, that is sort of this interaction. But of course, uh, uh, now that the computers are really well at doing that, so I, uh, I don't see any problem with that. But it's, um, I think it's also good to realize what it's, what it's fundamentally doing um, and what we're doing with it. I mean, I, th I think it still is a mirage and I, um, it is this weird, m weird mirror um, of of our our sort of our metaphors. We are sort of bouncing back to us, and behind that is something completely different. And this, as I said, this the, the acceleration of this system is is increasing so rapidly that uh, it's really hard to sort of follow what's what the reality is of the machine. But yeah, no, there's great, of course, tons of stuff. I mean, they have their own uh, desktop performances, Jody, and they've done a lot of work in this field as well. No, I think that was it. I think okay. now we can have a drink. And um, I think counting for one second will be on view soon. Yes, yes, that's uh, great. Because Jan yep. Robert has a solo performance, uh, performance, <laughs> a solo <laughs> exhibition at Upstream Gallery next year, starting 24th. 24th of 24th. January, so yeah, very welcome to come. Be there, yeah. and uh, in the meantime, we will be working on our next cultural meta exhibition, which will be with Martine Dam, uh, starting in February. But before we have Jan Robert again here, because on the 15th of January, and that's the little flyers you find on your seats, there will be the audience perform a mirror festival revolving around the iconic work of Dan Graham and. Jan Robert Lechter will be one of the artists reenacting, reperforming, reinterpreting uh, this work from 1977. So hope to see you at one of these events. And for now, drinks and thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you.